Fine Music Radio. People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio and this is Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. And just before I introduce you to my guest, how about this for the name of a book? Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy. And I'm not joking, that is the title of a book called A Memoir by my guest, Milani Favut. Now, Milani is a former member of Parliament, South African Ambassador to Ireland, and Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland. She's a best-selling author, columnist, and top-rated political analyst from here, Cape Town, South Africa. And there are other books as well, When We Dance, The Favut Who Toy Toyed, Almadiba and 21 at 21, so a host of books. So, Milani, it's great to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. Rodney. Well, it's when I, I mean, that title, Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy, mm. is very catchy, let's face it. First of all, it sounds that it's only for women, and I gather it isn't. We'll come to that. But secondly, Although it sounds funny, it's based on a fairly traumatic event in your life, isn't it? Mm, it is. Two years ago, um, almost, it was June 2021, I went for my normal annual gynecological checkup and was chatting away to the gynecologist. And suddenly, mid-sentence, while she was doing an ultrasound, she just went really quiet and leaned into the screen and said, um, oh, no, what's going on here? I really don't like what I'm seeing. And she turned around and said, can you quickly run up to go and do some blood tests? And I was like, yeah, why? And what are you looking for? And she Mm. said, oh, cancer, I can see a huge ovarian growth. And then followed two absolute nightmare work, weeks of more and more tests and more and more um, surgeons and seeing more and more specialists, everyone passing me on saying it was a bit above their pay grade. It was really terrifying. And eventually um, I got to the head of gynecological oncology at Tigerberg, um, Profeni Buta, who then said, look, there's a huge growth um, about the size of the long end of a credit card in diameter (laughs) so that's how I measure it which was very big and I had Mm. had absolutely zero symptoms and and it had to come out he gave it an 80 70 to 80 percent chance of being cancerous and he said uh, we have to do a radical hysterectomy and I never wanted one but um, from that moment actually from the moment the doctor said um, you know there's something here that's not good I knew I had to write and it's the only way I make sense of life and also calms me down and so and I felt I felt because it was a huge deal in the end I mean hysterectomies are especially radical abdominal hysterectomies and I knew it would be a terrible waste of what I was going through of a hysterectomy <laughs> if I didn't actually try and make some sense out of it and try and empower women as well through mm-hmm. that. Um, the book is not actually about hysterectomies. The book is actually just about the journey that followed the hysterectomy and what it triggered in me. But as you said a few times, what a frightening experience. One doesn't mm. want to be lying on a bed and a doctor suddenly goes quiet and starts saying, I don't like what I'm seeing. 
You know, I think anybody who's ever had that kind of experience at doctors or when they start getting nervous about something mm. um, knows what I'm talking about, you know, that terror. And you also feel completely powerless. You feel like you've run out of any um, sort of agency yes. about your own health and body. And, you know, I stood at the, at the, at the lift just outside the doctor's surgery and had to go up two floors to go and get the, the blood results or to have the blood test done. And as I was um, standing there, I was like, frantically googling you know of course what one should never do saw how terrible the survival rates are the five-year oh survival rates of ovarian cancer but i kept saying to myself i don't have cancer i can't i'm too healthy i have no symptoms and of course by the time i reached two floors up i was convinced that i did have cancer and i think people who go through this kind of medical experiences will know what i'm talking about mm -hmm. i uh, a friend of mine's wife a friend of mine had uh, ovarian cancer oh, and she died yeah. um after about four years, I think it was, and everyone said ovarian cancer is one of the worst. It and is. if you have it, it can it's bound to kill you. Yeah, it's the survival rate is the five-year survival rate is something around twenty-nine percent. And part of the problem is that they do, they can't. There's no proper testing that mm. can just find it. Routine testing that's non-invasive. So once they can see that there's a growth and they can see with an MRI or a CT scan that it's a hard mass and not a cyst, the only thing they can do is cut into you and do a preemptive hysterectomy and remove the growth. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I get very angry about in the book, and I had to deal with a lot of anger because of course if you compare that with prostate cancer where a simple blood test can be done and the survival rate is 95 to 97% now um, and I wanted to know why is there such a difference and of course when I looked the research the money allocated to research was part of the answer because they allocate something like two and a half times the amount to prostate cancer than they do to ovarian or uterine cancers oh my and goodness. Of course, that explains a lot about yes. why. And, and must have made you even more angry. Oh, I was super angry. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, I went through all the phases of grief, you know, um, <laughs> after the operation. And certainly one of them was definitely anger. And I, I mm -hmm. write very frankly about that in the book. So as you say, it's interesting. The book is not necessarily about the process of a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. It's about hearing about it and then dealing with it afterwards. It is. And it's also got to do a lot with middle age um, mm -hmm. and the process, you know, um, I think we thankfully are starting to talk a little bit more about menopause and, and the effect that has on women. So that's part of it. But it's also, it was also, it was a lot more about what the hysterectomy triggered in me to deal with a lot of things I think women at some stage have to deal with, you know, our, our relationships with money, our relationships with our partners, our relationships with our own bodies, our relationships with our sexuality. And then definitely at the end of the book, there's a bit of a war cry from my side about especially older women becoming invisible in society and how society treats them and saying that's not good enough my goodness me <laughs> okay let's have a break just before because there's some more i want to ask you about this book before we start talking about you and your, your life your fascinating life now you've chosen your first piece of music the prayer cycle mm. just tell me what this is all about and why you chose it so the prayer cycle is something I discovered shortly after it was released the first time in 1999. And I studied theology, which was a weird thing to do. For at, a lady, uh, yes. Yes, it was. I was the only woman in my class of 50 men at Stellenbosch University. So I have a very strong, not any more organized religion, but a very strong sort of spiritual and religious, I guess, well, religious background. And today still I have very sort of spiritual, spiritual longing. Um, so... 
this this is a, a fantastic piece of music that really touches my soul. It's a, a choral symphony. And it's in 13 languages, believe it or not. It's amazing. And it was composed by Jonathan Elias. Um, and there's people like Alanis Morissette and James Taylor are some of the famous people on it. Um, but I just find it very emotive and beautiful.
That's a piece called, well, Part of a Prayer Cycle by Jonathan Elias, Movement One. And it was the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Milani Favut. And apart from her background and career, this book she's written, Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy, is one of the things that caught my eye and got you to come in, Milani. But um, I was interested now, we've been talking about a very complicated aspect of a woman's life, but you said that Peter Story, the Reverend Peter Story, has suggested that men read this book. I haven't read it. But you also said that men appeared at a launch. Mm. So I'm a very good friend of the lovely Bishop Peter Story, oh, a phenomenal oh, yeah. man. Um, and also he he often fixes my language. I always go, you know, Afrikaans is still my first language. So I'd often, when I write things, go and say, Peter, can you please fix my E's and my R's, which I still get wrong. I'm sure I'll do it a couple of times today as well. <laughs> um, but I was struck that he, after reading the book, said that he felt it was a very important book for men to read. Because I think there is a lot of confusion for men around what happens to women around men pause when very dramatic things happen to their bodies but also to their minds often Um, and then definitely also after hysterectomies um, I saw in many I've now met with literally and spoken to hundreds of women now who've had hysterectomies and the bewilderment that their partners often go through because it's such a big deal and they're not prepared for it and it's been interesting both the launch and at the Franzuk festival um, recently, there were a lot of men in the audience, which was oh, heartwarming for me, yeah. actually. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder men might be typically a little scared of subjects like that. Mm. And it's really quite an unknown, isn't it, if your wife suddenly starts showing signs of um, altered behavior, whatever, it's yes. scary. And getting he or having power surges as I call hot flashes <laughs> you know and and sweating and mm. becoming particularly grumpy and basically tell you to make your own dinner and that kind of thing <laughs> so um, I yeah I mean I think there are dramatic things and I think a society in particular when it comes to issues affecting older women uh, or affecting them more I think we don't talk about it um, and that's what I'm trying to hysterectomy well this ovarian cancer that mm. you had causing well, the hysterectomy yes does that happen to older women or can it happen anywhere? So let me just first say, I was very lucky. I was one of 3% of women then who has this particular growth that turned out not to be um, cancer. I was so delighted. Of course, also then I went through a period of mourning because then actually I said, but if we had had better testing, I wouldn't have needed this very dramatic ap- operation that took me about... Oh, eight months before I was not oh, still sore really and uncomfortable. That. Oh, it's a really big deal. And I think that's mm. one of the things I've discovered that's really a problem for women going through hysterectomies is that doctors will tell you oh, three to six weeks and you should be fine. And particularly if you've had ab- abdominal surgery, so as opposed to laparoscopic, then I think, you know, women expect to feel better and they don't. And then and then that gets them down. And, and, and you know, it's a big emotional thing as well. Um, so, and yes, I mean, ovarian cancer is not unique to older women, but it is by far something that is usually over 50 that women get it. It's not, like I said, it can happen to younger women, but certainly it becomes much more prevalent and quite prevalent amongst women who are over 50. It's usually where it starts picking up. And that's why it's so important, of course, that women get regular tests. Yeah. 
Because as you said, Milani, um, you had no symptoms at all. The friend I was talking about started talking about cramps in her tummy and things, so they, that's how they discovered it. So this was the one thing I've discovered through all my, my trials and tribulations, was I kept saying, how is it possible that something the size of a grapefruit, which was what it was, um, when they took it out, how did I not feel it? How mm. was there no pain, did not put pressure on other organs? And so they explained to me um, that basically, as women, we have polite organs go figure <laughs> so polite that they can actually kill us because what happens is specifically in the sort of lower abdominal area that the organs will make space as something grows down there in anticipation or in the, on the assumption that there's a pregnancy happening oh, so goodness. gynecological cancers almost all of them are incredibly silent um, and well by the time they are discovered or by the time, let me rather say this, by the time they give you discomfort, it's usually quite late. And that's why it's a problem. And that's why things, and that's true of cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, and also uterine cancer. So it's really important that women do get, you know, at Regular least, at least biannual checkups. Isn't it funny, they call prostate cancer the silent killer, mm. but in a sense, so is ovarian. Yes. And I think men still discover, have symptoms a little bit earlier with prostate cancer, you know, discomfort and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And also it's much more talked about, much more known. There's not, you know, there's no taboo about it. Men talk about it quite frequently. And I think so. I think what we need to do is just move that whole thing also over to... Is there a taboo health. around hysterectomies? Very interesting for me. And that's why I wrote the book was <laughs> just how one of the reasons I wrote the book was how much silence they were around hysterectomies one out of five, every five one out of five women will get a hysterectomy by the age of 55 so it's really high numbers mm. and yet if you ask around people say mm, i think my mom had one maybe my granny don't know and i found that even and i found it in myself that i had a slight sense of shame about getting the hysterectomy um was worried about that my clients for example will start seeing me as an old woman you know um and also i found that other women would whisper to me and said i also had one and then i would say why are we <laughs> whispering you know <laughs> and there, there's definitely still a cloak of silence there's a it is it's very yeah. sad and there's a cloak of silence around it and that also means of course when women go through it that they become that they feel very lonely um mm. through the whole process and so in addition to the book i also did a podcast um because the book is my journey after the hysterectomy and the year that followed the hysterectomy but i realized that women were talking to each other on facebook mainly and asking very basic medical questions to one another instead of doctors all around the world, these massive Facebook communities. And so I felt that wasn't good enough. And um, so I put a podcast together under the same title, Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy, and it's on all the platforms. And that features 12 episodes of interviews with medical practitioners about how to prepare for a hysterectomy, what happens on the day, what are the terminologies, what are the possible side effects that you need to watch for, what are the things that can go terribly wrong, you know, when do you call a doctor, when don't you? Um, how to get back um, sexually, um, how to deal with pelvic floor issues, and then also the emotional, and then there's one episode for the partners as well. Oh my goodness, and um, surely I hope that's getting very, very good response. Do you know it is? And it's it's so <laughs> rewarding. We've seen, oh, we've seen thousands <clears throat> of downloads within the first month, and all over the world, which is exciting, wow. even Fiji, Antigua, Jamaica, you know, everywhere in the world, we're suddenly seeing women um, picking it up and listening to 12 episodes, you know, back to back. 
Can I ask you a naive question? Do you have to have a growth before you have a hysterectomy? The hysterectomy can go ahead, not necessarily with any cancer scares. Yes, I mean, cancer diagnosis is one of the main reasons they would do a hysterectomy or if they've, you know, already cancerous um, cells there. But um, there are all kinds of reasons women have hysterectomies and sometimes very young as well. So if there are enormous bleeding, if they have very big fibroids, if there is deformities of the uterus, that's causing them huge discomfort. Um, and so hysterectomies can be life-saving and they can definitely be life-improving as well. Mm-hmm. The concern is that there are many of hysterectomies in America where they do 600,000 hysterectomies every year, up to 70% of hysterectomies don't meet expert panel's criteria for hysterectomies. So there's also concern that doctors too easily you know, instead of helping women with hormonal supplements or other alternatives, that doctors sometimes just when women reach a certain age go, well, we'll just rip it all out, as they say. <laughs> and and yeah. I mean, that is something that I think we need to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I keep talking about this friend of mine's wife who they took out so much mm-hmm. of her that they said, look, we can't take any more out. Mm-hmm. We've just got to leave it now mm-hmm. and send her home to, to die, basically. So it's there's such trauma, as you said. Oh, let's play another piece of music before we get to Biko by Peter Gabriel. Now, what's that all about? Well, I think just about any anybody in the world, everybody in the world will know this um, song. Obviously, my background from a very young age was in politics. So yes, this played a big, to big role <laughs> in my life. And in November 2003, uh, during the first 4664 concerts in Mandela's oh, yes, honor, yes, yes. I was ambassador at that stage in Ireland, and I was asked to help the Irish guests here in South Africa. So I traveled with the cause and with Bono and so on. And um, on the evening of the concert, it was in the old Greenpoint Stadium still, and um, I was very privileged to sit in the box just behind Mandela and the, the celebrities and I was watching Mandela in front of me you know at times getting a bit bored and sleepy and then at times he would see he loved the chorus for example so when they came on stage he shushed Grasa next to him <laughs> because he really wanted to see these beautiful young Irish women um, and then Peter Gabriel came on stage and he sang Biko and if I'm not mistaken it was the first time he sang it live in South Africa and everybody of course stood up and lifted up their cell phones and cigarette lighters and I, I looked actually behind me and Chlumelo Biko, Biko's son, was standing behind me and tears were pouring oh, down gosh. his face. So it was yeah. such a such an emotional um, event. Um, and afterwards, I was there's another bit to the story. Mandela invited a few of the artists and myself to visit, to go on a game farm with him. So we spent Annie Lennox, Peter Gabriel, the cause and a few other stars we were able to spend some time on a game farm with Madiba so that was an amazing time of my life as you you do you know yes as one does (laughs) of course okay here we go Biko Peter Gabriel
there you are that song called Biko and sung by Peter Gabriel and it was the second choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week the journalist uh, member of parliament ex ambassador to Ireland uh, Melanie Favot whose new book Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy we've been tackling but of course you know they speak of elephants in the room, mm. and I know I spoke to you about this before. But what about the surname Favot? Did you never think of changing it? I saw somewhere that Mandela himself said, mm. "Don't change it." Is mm. that right? Well, when Valhalla, I'm, I'm married to. Uh, oh, I was married. That's a Freudian slip. I was married <laughs> to Wilhelm Favot, um, mm. who is a grandson of H. F. Favot. So my kids are great grandchildren. Um, and uh, we, in 1990, shortly after Mandela's release, um, met him in Stellenbosch at an event where he wanted to engage Madiba style with academics. And it was his first visit to Stellenbosch, but it was very sort of a quiet visit. It wasn't mm -hmm. publicly known. And Yanni Momberg, people might still remember um, Yanni. Um, oh, Yanni yes. introduced us to Madiba and went, um, you know, to the journalists, of course, grandson. And Madiba knew who we were, and um, Valhalla wanted to apologize. And Madiba would have for his family's, you know, part in Madiba's incarceration because we had already by then met the ANC and it definitely moved on. Mm. And um, um, Madiba would hear none of it and just looked at us and said, no, 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 no. He said, like, um, we look forward now. If you're, you need to understand that a surname like Favot will be recognized and you need to decide, do you use it for the good? Or do you use it for bad in this country? Because it's not going to be neutral. And so that's, you know, that was a big motivation um, for me as well on the route that I then took. I was already very interested in politics, but that motivated me to become a lot more active. And I, I joined the ANC the next day and became a member of um, the local executive very quickly. And that then led me to parliament in 1994. I have to actually just also add, Madiba <laughs> and typical Madiba style then looked at Valhalla and said, uh, by the way, how is your grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> grandmother, yes. And of course we went like, oh, oh. and Valadam said, oh, she's fine. Thank you very much. She lives in Urania now. And, um, you know, Oma Betsy was still alive at that stage. And Madiba then looked at him and said, well, if she won't get angry with you, can you please send her my regards and tell her that I'm happy she reached this ripe old age? You know? yeah. um, I mean, I think that was the first real sign for us is this extraordinary man and his mm. extraordinary capacity for forgiveness um, do any of the other Favuts live in Urania yet? Um, are there any family members there? Oh, yes. I mean, Urania is very much driven by Favut descendants. You mm -hmm. know, the Bosovs, of course, Karo Bosov and Anna Bosov. Anna Bosov was a daughter of Favut, so they're right. the ones who are driving it in Urania. Have uh, you been to Urania? Yes, more than once. And <laughs> Were you and like family? <laughs> Not at all, of Oops. course. Well, they know the first um, the first time we actually went was very funny because I was already in Parliament, so of course the breakdown in Valalem's close family had happened with his dad and we were thrown out of the family and you know very much um, regarded as traitors to the Africana cause and you know resulted in a lot of death threats but Carol Bosov asked us to come because it was Oma Betty I, if I'm not mistaken I think it was her 85th birthday or something 
So we went and we took our two children who were toddlers at that stage, but we had just moved to Cape Town. And even though we still to this day speak Afrikaans at home in Cape Town, they kind of went to English preschools and also started to assume that anybody strange that they didn't know was most probably rather English than Afrikaans, yes. as the opposite would apply in Stellenbosch. And so we arrive in Urania. They'd both fallen asleep in the car and we get out and the whole family room where we meet is there's just endless favors because, you know, it's a big family. And they're all there, and my kids look up. And, of course, there's already tension in the air with me and CMP and us. And, and um, we walk in, and they say hello to the children, and both my children start speaking English back, which Oops. is, of course, not the thing you want to happen in Urania. And for some reason, for the sins of the parents, for that whole weekend, no matter what I did, my kids insisted to speak English to all the cousins or nephews or, you know, whoever there was their cousins. And then um, also my daughter, who was about four or five, tried to teach them Nkosi Sikilele, you know, which was also didn't go down <laughs> so well. In the so middle well of Urania. In Urania. Wow. Good grief. But the family, but that family... Are you still with, uh, accepted by them, the, the remaining Favuts no. in Oranya? No. no. I mean, okay, no. no. I mean, it's not like there is conflict between us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm divorced from Valhalla now and have been for a long time. And Valhalla, I'm, I'm good friends now. Um, but certainly, I mean, I'm not... Uh, they, I'm not. They well. I'm not the kind of person they'll invite over for a <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> right, um, yeah. I have contact with some of the bosses from time to time from the political side of things, um, and there's no big problem. But it's obviously not. You know, it's not a warm and comfortable relationship. And when you were sent to Ireland as ambassador, mm. that that must have been actually quite a nice posting. It was. It was. I asked for it. Oh, did um, you? I did. I. 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 I become a member of parliament in 1994 and I was at that stage the youngest woman ever to be elected. That's right. So I was very young. You were 27 or something. Yes, just in 27 during the election days. Um, And my children were tiny and you know, so, and it had taken a strain and those first so that first term of parliament, we really worked. <laughs> Nothing like the MPs mm. do today. It was, we really, really worked hard. You know, we had to rewrite all the legislation. We were writing the constitution as well as a parallel process. You were involved a bit with the constitution, yes, weren't you? Yes, there's one or two lines that I can claim that's mine. <laughs> and then um, we also, of course, had enormous constituency work because for the first time now, people in the townships had MPs that they can go to and they were not local councillors yet. So we were really the only, you know, whether roofs were leaking, whether there were marital issues, debt issues, children's issues, you know, whatever, the way they came to us. So we really worked very hard. But um, And that started putting in the whole public thing around the favot, also started putting a lot of strain on the marriage. And so eventually I went to Tabombeki at that stage and said, could I please have a little bit of a break from parliamentary politics? Um, and could I please become ambassador? And he agreed very kindly. And then I I also asked specifically for Ireland, and luckily <laughs> and he his, thought, his love for what? Yates. No, he's of course a big lover of Yates, and that really ah. that helped. Once I quoted Yates, he he relented. Yes. <laughs> okay. And how long were you there? I well, I was ambassador for four and a half years, mm-hmm. um, and then I stayed on, um, did a bit of broadcasting at the national broadcaster. But Adam and I got divorced at the end of my um, term of office, and I wasn't that keen to come back and deal with all that um, back in South Africa. Did a bit of broadcast. In, um, Ireland. in Ireland at the National Broadcaster and then um, became head of UNICEF in Ireland and absolutely loved that. So all in all, I was there for over 12 years. Another piece of music, Milani, uh, Pink, When I Get There. Mm, so this is a harder <laughs> one for me. 
So in Ireland, um, after I got divorced from Wilhelm, I met a, a beautiful man called Jerry Ryan, who was very, very famous in Ireland. Um, he was a broadcaster himself, and institution in Ireland had been on the national broadcaster for 17 years, had a three-hour show in the morning. So if you had a problem, you didn't phone anybody else, you phoned Jerry Ryan. Jerry pursued me, and um, I eventually relented, and we had a, he was really the love of my life. But unfortunately, he then died two years after I met him um, or f since we were in a relationship and yeah that was I was absolutely devastated by it um, it's now 13 years on but I still miss him so recently on Pink has got a new I love Pink's music and Pink has a new album called Trustful and the first song on the album is called When I Get There and she is obviously singing it to somebody who's who's passed away and or passed on. And I if I could write music and if I could write lyrics, this is exactly what I would say and I would write for Jerry. I think of you when I think about forever. I hear a joke, and I know you would have told it better I think of you out of the blue When I'm watching a movie that you'd hate You'd say it, you were never one to hesitate You were always first in line So why would it be different for heaven? But I got a couple questions Is there a bar up there Where you've got a favorite chair Where you sit with friends And talk about the weather Is there a place you go To watch the sunset And oh, is there a song You just can't wait to share Yeah, I know You'll tell me when I get there mm. Do you think of me? Do you wish that I would slow down? Are there some things that you've seen that feel like home now? Are you up there climbing trees? Singing brand new melodies? I hope you are I know you are is there a bar up there where you've got a favorite chair where you sit with friends and talk about the weather is there a place you go to watch the sunset and oh is there a song you just can't wait to share yeah i know you'll tell me when i get there yeah, yeah, you'll tell me when I get there Will you save me a place With all those pearls of wisdom Yeah, I'll make some mistakes And you'll watch me as I live them Till I'm through Till I'm with you Is there a bar up there Where you've got Chair, where you sit with friends and talk about, talk about the weather Is there a place you go to watch the sunset and oh is there a song 
you just can't wait to share Yeah, I know, you'll tell me when I get there yeah. I think of you when I think about forever Uh, listening to that, Melania, I think I know what you mean, where you said if you were to write a song about Jerry, you would write something like mm-hmm. that. When I Get There, performed by Pink. And my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week is Melanie Fervut. I just want to go into what you're doing now, because you, you write extensively for News24. You have a political column there, but also you've got your own website. So you are you're working hard still in politics. I do. I, I did, when I came back from Ireland then, after my partner died, it became too hard to stay in Ireland. So I came back. I always wanted to come back, but I thought I'd split my time, but came back to South Africa. was a little bit at a loss of what to do. And then the beautiful Alistair Sparks, who was a friend of mine, got me to do some political analysis to help him with some political analysis. And I have to say, I couldn't believe that people would pay me to talk politics. But <laughs> I talk politics all day. And so um, we um, started doing that. And after Alistair passed away I took sort of over the work that he was doing and then eventually went on my own so I spent my, my day job is really talking to financial clients or anybody who's interested in it to talk about to analyze politics I haven't been a member of the ANC for a while since I became ambassador because I felt you had to be neutral as an ambassador and certainly as a political analyst it's important for me to be neutral so, so. have you left the party I well, I just never renewed the membership when I became oh, okay, ambassador, okay, you know, okay. so I still have a lot of contacts, of course, I have a lot of friends still there, and I understand the workings of the ANC quite well, um, but I'm, you know, I'm certainly not a member anymore. Mm-hmm. Is it an ANC that has disappointed you? Deeply. Yeah, of course. And I'm not the only one that would say that that was there in 1994. You Mm -hmm. know, I think most of the people who were members of parliament for the ANC at that stage would say that we are heartbroken at the way that things have turned out, um, that we still believe it can be fixed, definitely. But um, obviously, particularly the Zuma years, um, really just destroyed so much of what we built up in those first few terms. And Mm -hmm. it's really broken our hearts. Yeah. Gosh. And what about the UNICEF thing, Melanie? Mm. Is that still part of your life or not? No, I loved UNICEF. Most probably one of the best jobs I ever had. Really enjoyed working for UNICEF. Um, but that ended um, after my partner died. Um, love UNICEF still, but it's not something I am involved in anymore. Mm-hmm. So your main occupation then at the moment is as a political analyst yes. and advising people on financial issues and so on. Well, on political issues, I'm not so good on the financial side. I'm <laughs> more good on the political <laughs> side. They must work out the finances. I see also that in 2013, no, when was it? In 2007, you received the International Women of the Year Award in Ireland. Yes. That's something to be proud it of. It was. So very out of the blue. Um, I mean, I, I think what happens with me is wherever I go, it's f- for my sins. I um, tend to get a public profile and I become an activist. And in Ireland also, I became a bit of an activist for people who were coming from other cultures in Ireland and were struggling. I also presented a radio show called Spectrum, who was specifically, uh, was, was specifically dealing with the 
issue around diversity and the struggles. Would you call yourself a feminist? Oh, yes. Oh, would you? Yes, of course. Look at your face light up. Yes. Like I mean, people have different ideas about what feminism well, is. Well, that's but, the thing, yes. But for me, it's, it's – some people have sort of caricatures about it. For me, it's anybody who believes that women and men are equal and should be treated equally, if not the same. I don't believe women and men can be treated the same because we have different things that happen to us, you know, like pregnancies. But and certainly like, equal. Like yes, a, and hysterectomies. hysterectomies yeah. But certainly that we are equal. Mm-hmm. And I think if you believe that, then you are a feminist per definition okay we're going to have to end now but thank you it's been fascinating talking to you about these women's thing just a reminder of your book it's called don't waste a good hysterectomy never waste a good never waste a good is it available on the shelf it is and if people struggle to get it because some people are they can just go to my website which is this milani uh .co.za just Milani Favot you'll find the website that will also help them they can buy the book directly from there it's very easy and very smooth is writing something that you enjoy it Mm. seems though this book was cathartic yes it had to be cathartic for you but generally speaking you've written various books do you enjoy writing so I like storytelling as you can most probably gather yes Um, I think stories are sort of the thread that binds us all together and yes so when I can write and I can write and particularly stories and even when I write political stuff on my in my columns people can see that I usually start somewhere there's a story in the in the (laughs) in the column Um, and so yes it is cathartic it's something I really enjoy it's not something that comes completely naturally to me but it's certainly something that's become easier over the years so what's next Milani I don't from your know. pen <laughs> <laughs> things seem to find me like hysterectomies <laughs> right. you know okay. I, I kind of really just open myself for well, now I want to promote this book I want to become a I am a voice increasingly again for women I think and particularly for older women but for women in general it's sort mm. of a thing that I left for a little while when mainstream politics took over, I feel very strongly in the status of women in this country is just so Well, that's so another horrendous. big problem, isn't it? The so GB, horrendous. the gender-based violence, exactly. which is, seems completely out of hand. And, you know, so I'm, I'm back doing, doing that kind of talk. All right. Now, your last piece of music, interestingly, yes. is called, listen to this, What Happens When a Woman Takes Power? Yes, it's by the Artemisia trio from Chicago, three women. Um, and this piece was written by one of them, Alexandra Olsovsky. And um, they sing a cappella, and it's just beautiful. And so I really want to invite the women who's listening in on this. Turn, on your, turn up your radio, turn it li- nice and loud. And if you're not in your car, have a little jive around on this. Because I think it asks that question, you know, that we should all ask ourselves, what happens when a woman actually takes power? Well, let's ponder that while we listen to the song. Milani, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thanks for your time coming in. And all strength to your arm, as always. My guest, Milani Favort. Thanks, Milani. Thank you, Rodney.
happens when she won't back down? What happens when a woman takes power? What happens when she wears the crown? What happens when she rules her own body? What happens when she sets the beat? What happens when she bows to nobody? What happens when she stands on her own two feet? What happens when a woman takes power? What happens when she won't back down? What happens when a woman takes power? What happens? What happens? What happens when a woman takes power? What happens when she won't back down? What happens when a woman takes power? What happens when she wins the crown? People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Thank you.